Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Game Alone's podcast. This is episode two, season two, and today we're doing something a little bit different. As many of you who follow me over on my Instagram channel, Instagram profile, Instagram account, whatever you want to call it, at the Sam Norris, you'll know that on a Monday afternoon at 5 p.m., every single Monday afternoon, I might add, at 5 p.m., we do a live Q&A talking about property finance, property investing, etc., etc., that we call the Monday Mortgage Melt. We're actually up to episode 83 now, but what I wanted to start doing was sharing these live Q&As with you guys that listen to the Game Alone's podcast because the questions just generally are so blooming good and I want to share these questions and my answers with you as often as I possibly can. Now, I'm going to put a little bit of a side note on this. The Instagram isn't always the best when it comes to allowing me to download the videos from the channel um, so that I can actually strip the audio and put it onto the Game Alone's podcast. So it might not be every single week, but I'm going to do my very best to get these on every Tuesday morning at 8am so that you can listen to them on the drive to work or on the drive home if you don't get the whole... Uh, get through the whole episode on the drive to work, um, where you can just listen back to all of the questions that I get asked and uh, some of the answers that I give. Hopefully a new way of you being able to learn a couple of little snippets. Um, but do let me know what you think about this. Is this a good idea? Is this something I should carry on doing? Send me a direct message or DM, as the kids call it, over on Instagram at the Sam Norris. Let me know what you think. Here you go. Take a, take a little listen to the first of the Monday Mortgage Melts I'm sharing on the Game of Loans podcast, but it's actually episode 83 of the Monday Mortgage Melt. Enjoy, people. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 83 of the Monday Mortgage Melt. Yes, your weekly Q&A with me, where you can ask me anything you like with regards to property investing, property finance, um, building a business, whatever you like. I'm here to answer all of your questions. And yes, can you believe it's episode 83? This is the 83rd week on the trot that you get to see my rather averagely looking face uh, <laughs> on your screens answering your uh, property investment and property finance questions. So welcome everyone that's joining. Um, obviously everyone was eager because as soon as I hit the button quite a few people just jumped straight in and starting to hit the old little heart button in the corner. So thank you very much guys. All the love is greatly appreciated. Um, so now look, a um, little bit of, uh, of, of housekeeping as I usually do at the beginning of these. If you do want to ask me a question, please don't put it into the comments. If you're watching here on Instagram, please put it down into the question box as somebody very, very usefully has already done. Um, and I will be able to get to your questions, bring it up on the screen, read it out, everyone can see it, and we can get through um, as many questions as we possibly can. But just by way of a little mini intro, uh, for those of you that maybe haven't been on this live Q&A before, uh, Boxall Homes, evening, nice to see you. Um, my name is Sam. I am the owner and director of Grand Union Finance. We are a specialist brokerage that um, that basically helps investors and developers raise the finance that they need for their property projects. So this could be by way of a traditional mortgage, buy-to-let mortgage, HMO mortgage, serviced accommodation mortgage, something like that. Or it could be slightly more complicated stuff like bridging finance or development finance, or we also help arrange commercial mortgages as well. So I've been doing this now for 15 years, believe it or not. Um, I'm starting to feel it a little bit. There's a few greys in the old beard. Um, but uh, so that hopefully means that any questions that you do have, I should be able to answer them for you. Um, but 
we have had a few questions coming from my stories earlier on. For those of you that are used to jumping on here at five o'clock on a Monday, you will know that during the day I put a little story, a little question box in my stories where you can ask me any priority questions you've got so I can get through those first and foremost. So you can make sure you definitely get your question answered um, because over the last few weeks we have actually run out of time. Not everyone has actually managed to have their question answered. I keep saying asked. That's not how it works at all. I, You ask questions and I answer them. Um, you instruct me. <laughs> so let's get down to it. I know we've got a few questions from earlier on. If you are enjoying the live as we're doing it, please keep hitting the like button down in the bottom right hand corner because uh, it, it notifies Instagram that we're doing a decent job and more people will hopefully come and join so we get some more questions. So. Let's get started. Um, oh, nice little one to kick us off. Can you get a holiday let mortgage without experience? Very, very good question. Um, now, generally speaking, when it comes to experience or it comes to trying to get some kind of finance, there is usually the answer to all of these is generally yes, you can. Now, the, the, the sort of the kicker to it is how much are you actually willing to pay? Because you there are commercial lenders, there are, you know, Bridging lenders that do a little bit of kind of like two, three year type mortgages uh, sort of scenarios where, you know, they might charge you six, seven, eight, nine percent um, for the benefit of using their finance because you don't have the experience or, or whatever it might be. There might be some other extenuating circumstances to why you can't just go to the normal market. So, yes, is the answer. There are a lot more lenders out there now that are lending on holiday lets or as we might call them in the industry, serviced accommodation. Um, they are sometimes called short lets as well. Um, so, this, type, this market really is like the Wild West at the moment. There are there are so many lenders out there that don't really know what to call it yet. Um, each of those different um, terminologies have been used. And also, they don't even really know how to kind of work out how much they can lend to you. There are various different options when it comes to actually working out um, what the rental income is and what rental income should be used for rental calculators or to work out loan sizes. Traditionally speaking, commercial lenders would always look at the last couple of years in terms of income and use that to kind of sort of create a, a sort of commercial valuation of the property. Uh, more recently, we've had holiday lets where um, lenders like to see uh, you go and speak to a specialist agent to get uh, you know a high, mid and low um, season rate and they might use various different types of calculations using those figures to work out what the average rate is. And the one that I quite like um, is the one, the simplest one, which lenders will say, well, look, if you rented this out on a standard AST, that's a short, short hold tenancy agreement, i.e. a standard normal tenancy agreement, what would you get? And is that enough to satisfy our standard rental calculation? If it is, Fan dabby dozy, we're going to lend you the money. So um, they're, they're sort of the ways. But getting back to the question in terms of can you get it without an experience? Yes, but um, to, to, to access slightly better rates, you need to be a homeowner. This is this is something time and time and again we come up against, which is that, you know, to, to, to invest in property, lenders generally want to see that you're a homeowner already. If you don't own your own home, then you can get buy-to-let mortgages, you can get HMO mortgages, you can get service accommodation mortgages, but it's going to cost you. And so it, generally speaking, it, it helps a lot if you have your own home or at least one property that you own before going into some of these more specialist type um, strategies, HMO, service accommodation, etc. because lenders that are looking to lend on these types of um, situations 
they generally want to see some more experience because they see these as more advanced strategies. And if they're more advanced, they would prefer to be lending to somebody that has a bit of an idea of how they work and, or at the very least, has shown previous experience of renting property out in general, or at least paying a mortgage, which is what a residential home mortgage is, is there to show them as well. So answer the question is yes. That when we flesh it out, it's a little bit more convoluted than that. But um, but hopefully that was that was helpful for the person that answered uh, sorry asked that question. Um, annoyingly, when I do this, the questions from the stories, it just says questions from stories. It doesn't actually tell me who uh, who sent the question in. So hopefully that was a that was a good answer to that question. Quick reset. Guys, anyone that's joining late, if you wanna uh, ask me a question, please make sure that you put them in the question box down here, not in the comments box down here, because you put it in the comments as people are joining, as you can see, and some people might start commenting, saying hello, regard, whatever it might be, your question will get pushed up and I won't get to it. So stick it in the question box. I'm also able to then do what I'm about to do, which is to bring the question up on the screen. So another question from stories, is a BRR, buy, refurbish, refinance, always better than buy, hold, reinvest, mid to long term? Um, so this is a great question. And this very, this very much, so so I know some other brokers that have, that are, and I also know some kind of mentors and people like that, that are, that are really, they get almost quite angry that people don't use the buy, refurbish, refinance model uh, when building their portfolios. They will use the old tried and tested, buy, hold, and then kind of reinvest um, type strategy. What I would call, yeah, the tried and tested, the old the old school, save a 25% deposit, buy a property that you rent out and, and restart that process again. Um, now, for me, it all comes down to your own personal situation. Now, if you are looking to build a property portfolio where you know you say Sam I want to buy or I want to grow my portfolio to 10,000 pounds worth of net income in the next 4 years that's going to be a different conversation to somebody that says to me Sam I want to grow my portfolio to four properties in the next 7 years because if you want to if you're quite happy to you know go down the slow and steady wins the race type you know type strategy Property isn't necessarily going to be your 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 fundamental investment strategy. Maybe you've got a good business that you run, or you've got a great job that you're quite happy in, and, and you're moving up within that particular company. Um, and property is just there, a couple of properties in the background, just to give you that extra bit of income and that you know that extra security for when you you know in terms of your pension pot, which a lot of people do. And traditionally, this is what property you know was used for. Then, you know buying four or five properties in a in a seven to ten year period you know you genuinely can just go down the tried and tried and trusted tried and tested route and you can buy a property with a 25 percent deposit you can sit on it for a couple of years you can then refinance that at that point you might be able to release a bit of cash if the if the property market has been going in the right direction release a bit of equity um, you would have saved some money during that period of time and perhaps then you'll now have another deposit ready to go and um you know, and buy another property with, um, and then you just repeat that over the next, you know, 10 years, and you're going to end up with your, you know, your three to five properties that might be generating you, you know, a net cash flow of who knows if it's 200 per, per property, you know, you're looking at 1000, 1200 or something per month um, coming in, you know, and, and you just built that up nice and slowly. However, 
if you want to build quickly because you have greater aspirations, you want it to become more of a business, you want it to become more of a full-time thing, you want it to be something that can replace your income potentially, then on it, obviously that old tried and trust, trusted method is not going to be suitable for what you want to do as an investor. If you want to, like um, one of my clients did a couple of years ago, buy nine, 10 properties in a single calendar year, then you are going to have to use something like the buy, refurbish, refinance method, which some might suggest has a higher you know, level of risk. And there probably is to a certain extent um, because you are reliant on the market not crashing on you know the uh, your builders doing everything in time so you don't run out of time on your bridging loan or, or your, your property investor or whatever it might be and so you know this is it's it's about thinking where where do you want to be and then reverse engineering back to today and what do you have to then do to get there and if it means that if you if you have quite high aspirations if you if you know if you want to achieve a lot in a short period of time you are genuinely going to have to take a little bit more risk when it comes to to that sort of strategy and so that's where brr comes in it is slightly higher risk although i will say people people talk to me about it being higher risk some of the stuff i've just mentioned just then yes there are an element of there is an element of risk involved one thing that people talk to me about obviously regards to what i do for a living is oh sam can't do brr bridging finance Whew, that is that's risky i say no 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 now, i've said this on this uh on this uh live before um so apologies for anyone that's watching this for a second time or I repeat it. I say to my clients that question, you know, how risky bridging is. I say there are hundreds, if not thousands of investors in this country that use bridging every single day and they do it very successfully. Now, if you've got investor A over here and investor B over here, they're both buying a very, very similar property, um, a two up, two down, £100,000 property you know, somewhere up, up in uh, in Yorkshire or something like that. Um, and they both take out the same bridging loan um, and one manages to repay it and the other doesn't. What's the difference? The difference is the investor. So the differentiator is you, the investor. The bridging, the bridging lenders are lending the money to investor A, investor B, investor C, and investor, and investor D. And the, one, the, the investors that invariably do not pay them back on time are the ones that haven't taken the, into account various different things that could go wrong. So they might have taken out a six month term, for example, when actually there's no lending for them to be, to be refinanced within six months. So they struggle and then they have to, you know, they go over by two months or something on their bridging term and that means that they have to pay penalty fees and that means that they you know that the cash that they were going to recycle is gone well whose fault is that you know they haven't taken into account you know contingencies that could happen they maybe haven't actually they've, they've gone to an estate agent and said hi mr estate agent so i'm going to buy this house for 100 grand um and you know it's it's in a bit of a crap uh, condition at the moment but i'm going to i'm going to do a renovation this is what i'm going to do what how much do you think it's going to be worth at the end and then the estate agent goes ah oh, you'll be able to get 200 grand for that, no problem at all. And they've done no other due diligence other than that. They've gone in, they've done their figures, everything looks like it worked absolutely swimmingly. They come to refinance and the, the lender comes back with their surveyor um, doing uh, with a report that says it's worth 150. And they've, they've bought it for 100, they've done 25 grand's worth of work and there's genuinely no profit in it for them at all. Um, and, you know, they complain that the bridging costs are the reason it's not. 
it's the due diligence that was done at the start. So the bridging loan is going to be a constant here. All of, a lot of these things are constants, and it, the, the the things that are the variables generally, you know, human error is something that is a is a is a variable uh, because it will because it will change from person to person. So this is not me being an arsehole, guys. I'm not trying to be horrible to you all, telling you that you're wrong. What I'm saying is be diligent. Uh, don't blame the type of finance for things going wrong be diligent, do your figures, do your numbers, get second opinions from others that have done it before you that you befriend on Instagram or social media or whatever it might be um, and, and speak to them about it and get it right. Um, not everyone's going to get it right first time. Invariably, I speak to clients all the time where they have had a real part of my friend's shit show to, to, to start with on the first couple of deals. But, um, you know, You've got to go and find the right people. And I'm not saying I'm the right person. I might be one of the right people um, that you can go to that can talk you through this and really get an understanding of this, this kind of stuff very, very early on in the process, even if you are a complete newbie. So something to, to bear in mind there. Didn't really want to get on my old soapbox about this, um, but it happened anyway. Um, but yeah, so in terms of the answer to this particular question, is buy refurbish refinance always better than the buy hold reinvest sort of mid to long term strategy? Um, it very much depends on what your personal goals are, guys, as to what's going to work best for you. And there is no wrong answer. OK, there is no right answer. There's no wrong answer. What works for you will be the thing that works for you. Um, and, and everyone is different. So don't think just because Danny down the road is, you know, is doing a um, is, is buying 17 properties a minute that you need to be doing that because they might have to to achieve there's, there's there is a why behind that there's a reason they're doing that and it might not be the same reason you're doing it so don't hold don't don't think that they're up there and you're down here no you're both going and, and going after and trying to achieve very different goals okay guys so just bear that in mind please because i see a lot of clients that i speak to get really sort of stressed out and quite anxious about the fact that they go on instagram or facebook or whatever and they see these people doing these amazing things and they feel you know like they're left out and they're they're, they're not they're not right but actually they don't need to be doing stuff like that. You know, actually property can be quite simple in terms of buying just buy to let properties. There's nothing wrong with it. Guys, you know, one day, um, I've always wanted to do a commercial to residential conversion. That's something that I, I have as like a, you know, tip of my cap. But in, in reality, there's no actual reason for me wanting to do that other than just it looks fun. Um, I know for me personally, that what's going to work for me best as a property strategy. Look, I build businesses. You know that's what I I'm I'm doing at the moment uh, to generate income, which can be invested into property, which actually is the strategy that I think is it works best for me, and I've, I've seen it work for so many others in the past. Um, is to have that kind of turnover income that can be generated into more passive income on the left hand side. We know property isn't exactly passive, but you know what I mean. And that's you know that's what my strategy is, and I know that for me that. I'm going to be focusing so much attention over here that my property stuff over there, there needs to be as passive as possible. And that's obviously going to influence the type of, of, of uh, properties that I buy. Buying an HMO is not going to be a good strategy for me because it's very time consuming. Um, not only the conversion work at the beginning, but then dealing with six, seven, eight potentially, um, you know, uh, individual uh, tenants at any one time for any one property is is not conducive to the way that I want to be doing things. So social housing, buy-to-let is absolutely 
um, you know, the way to go for me personally. That isn't necessarily what's going to be the way to go for you guys. Um, hi, Tony. Good to have you on board. Very sunny Birmingham. I'm looking out over the, uh, you can't see this, but I'm looking out over the Grand Union Canal as we speak. That's where I got the name of the, the company from, for those that are interested. Um, and it is very, very, very sunny. I did try and entice my, my wife to go on an evening walk with me this evening. And she said, no, piss off, um, which is fair enough. Um, I did notice a comment earlier on, um, yeah, Boxall, um, actually base end calls on sold comparables, uh, not under offer or currently off market. Absolutely. You've got to put your yourself in the headspace, the mindset of a, of a mortgage valuer. It doesn't matter what an estate agent, estate agent can sell a property for. It does not matter what an estate agent can sell the property for, because even if they could sell it 20 grand more, than what the sales comparables are saying it could be sold for, because they, they might well be able to. Any of you watching Mega Mansion Hunters with Tyron Ash, um, as I've, I'm actually really enjoying that show. Um, bit of a bit of a, um, a guilty pleasure for me, if I'm honest with you. But you can see that the way in which they go about doing things, they can generate interest um, where other agents might not be able to do so. Okay, so they are doing something really cool that, um, you know, as much as I've, I've seen bad and good feedback on the program and, you know, it, it looks bad on agents or whatever, actually what they're doing from a business perspective is they're generating more income for their clients. Um, at the end of the day, they're selling properties um, at higher than the market value quicker than the market average because of the way in which they market themselves and they market those properties and they're very, very forward thinking in that regard. So agents, a particular agent might be able to sell a property better than what another agent down the road has already been able to sell a property for, which obviously a value, a mortgage valuer will not have seen. So when you're looking at uh, Boxall Homes, exactly, exactly right on this. If you are looking at what an in-value is going to be on a BRR project, you have to base it on what has already been sold because that is what a mortgage valuer is going to base it on. So thanks very much for that. And I did see that you got the, uh, you've added in vowels underneath. So good, good, good. Cool. Well, look, that was a, that was a question that got my blood pumping, obviously. Um, but I know we've got a few more, so I'm going to get cracking because I don't want to run out of time if I possibly can. By the way, uh, welcome to everyone that's joining. If you've got any questions you want to chuck into the box, um, do stick them down into the question box below and I'll get to them. I don't want to answer questions that come up in the comments. Um, well, I, I do, but I want you to put them in the comment in the, in the question box because then, as you'll see, I will be able to... Um, I'll be able to put them on the screen. So last question from the uh, from the stories from earlier on. Can you use bridging finance to buy, right to buy um, uh, your council home worth 450K? So no, uh, but you don't need to, okay? So when it comes to right to buy, um, I had someone that inquired about this yesterday. Um, I must admit, I don't do too many residential mortgages anymore. Um, I am in the market for a residential mortgage broker to come on board with Grand Union Finance. So I have interviewed a few people, so hopefully that's gonna be an exciting announcement uh, soon. Um, I did have an exciting announcement actually, uh, recently where we where we uh, have a brand new operations manager, Ruby, um, who's been doing some ad hoc work with us for a while, has now been promoted into the full-time role of being an operations manager, which is basically taking over a lot of the day-to-day running of our applications from me so I can spend more time speaking to clients, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, residential mortgages are not ne- necessarily my 100% forte. I don't mind dabbling in them 
every now and again, but really property investing is, is my fang. Um, but in terms of right to buy, I do tend to get quite a lot because I'm obviously originally from London and I don't know whether right to buy just seems to be a much, much bigger thing in London. Maybe it's because of the, the property prices are so dear, but you don't need to use bridging finance to purchase. Even if you could, you can't really, but even if you could, um, in fact you can, but because you can use any finance to purchase it, but you don't need to, right? When it comes to buying a right to buy property, um, you can, um, the, effectively, you're getting a discount, okay? And the mortgage lenders will do what bridging lenders can do, which is to base their loan on the open market value, not what, not in terms of how much cash is actually exchanging hands. So if you're buying your the council home for 450,000, for example, but it's worth 500, the, the lender will probably lend you that full, that, that full 450,000 as long as it's affordable for you on a residential mortgage. There is then going to be some time frames afterwards where you can't rent it, can't sell it, etc, etc. Um, but it gets you on the property market, it gets you into your own home. And to be honest with you, probably going to be um, probably going to be a um, a less of an expense paying a mortgage than it is on rent. I saw something at the moment that the average Maybe it was just to do with the southeast, and I can't remember if I actually read this stat right because now I'm thinking about it. It doesn't sound like it's 100, percent but the I think there's something like on average in the in London, the price of rent is something like a thousand pounds more than what the equivalent mortgage payment would be on that property. Um, I'm not too sure how they work that out because obviously loan to value will, will change. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, Renting is becoming much, much, much more expensive. So the right to buy option, I think, will become more um, more useful for for council tenants to be able to buy their own properties. Um, and yeah, look, it's uh, it's uh, it's really, really helpful. Um, so so yeah, so basically, to answer that question, can you use a bridging loan to 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 buy a right to buy council home? No, you don't. But you, but um, you will. Yes, you probably can, but you don't need to because mortgage lenders that mortgage lenders will have specific products, the likes of, and, and these are lenders that you'll know, you know, Halifax, etc. I think nationwide do them. They will have specific products for right to buy and they will be able to lend to you based on the open market value, not what you're purchasing it for. And they'll try, basically, they, you want to borrow how much you need to buy the property for and they will lend you that as long as it's affordable. So you don't need to worry, um, hopefully. That was helpful. So just as a reminder, guys, if you do want to ask a question, and I've seen a few people chucking a few questions into the, the comments, but as you've already seen, by the time I finish this question, um, that quest the question in the comments is gone. Put your questions in the question box, which is just down here, um, and I will be able to bring them up on the screen and I'll be able to answer them. Um, so let's get cracking with Joel's question, which is, um, was looking at getting a foot forward further advance, but my house has been downvalued. How can I challenge this? Okay, cool. So two things on there, which is um, to do with further advances. And then also let's talk about down valuation. So first and foremost, when anyone is looking to raise some finance from their own home, a further advance is always the thing that I advise them to do first. For me, there's three main ways of getting uh, money out of your own home to go and invest with. And that is A, further advance, B, second charge, and C, bridging loan. In that order of preference because of um, well, not just speed, because um, actually they're all relatively quick, to be quite honest with you. Um, 
but actually to do with cost. So a further advance, it's likely to cost you very similar to the rate you're paying on your, on your normal mortgage, and it will form the same, it will form a, a part of that first charge that lender has. They've also already got your, your, your details, they'll do a new affordability assessment, they'll, they'll do a new valuation potentially, and then they will tell you how much you can, you can borrow as a result of that. A second charge is that your first charge is your residential mortgage, that means that um, they get paid first, when you when you sell the property essentially or you refinance the property um and what you do is you then find another lender that will do a second charge so if you think of your first charge sits there your second charge sits above now it's only going to be a relatively small amount as a percentage you know if you've got if you, if you've got um you can borrow 20 percent of the property obviously that's going to be a smaller amount than the the rest of the, the mortgage that you've got and so even though the the um interest rate is likely to be maybe three or four percent higher in some instances you, you know it's still a relatively small amount that you're going to be paying per month in, in addition but it is going to be more expensive than going for the further advance of course the other option is to go for a bridge you can look at you know raising some finance on a second charge bridge to go with um to help you towards a new purchase generally speaking you want you need an exit plan for this you need to be able to know that you can refinance it or you can you know the property that you're using that money to buy you're going to be renovating and selling on to pay it back or whatever it might be similar exit strategies to any sort of renovation projects that you're going to be purchasing when you're using a bridging loan but they're the three main ways so um in terms of this question from joel Great option to go for the further advance, first of all, but he has encountered an issue, which is the property has been downvalued. Now, let's talk about what downvaluation actually means, because if a downvaluation, so downvaluations, actually, genuine downvaluations rarely actually happen. I'll tell you this, because um, up until recently, um, surveyors, they will put a lot of time and effort into researching the market and they will give a genuine opinion on what the market looks like and what this property will be valued at. Now, recently they have been incredibly busy. There's fewer fewer surveyors in the market than there has been in a long, long time because their insurance has gone up massively and some have actually pulled out of the markets. So we have got a bit of a shortage of surveyors, but um, they're still they're still out there. <laughs> but it does mean that when they're really, really busy, they might be taking on two or three jobs extra a week, which obviously has a knock-on effect to their capacity, which has a knock-on effect to how quickly they do the work, which has a knock-on effect to how how quality that that work actually is in my humble opinion i have put in more appeals recently than i've ever had to really in my whole career for clients um just the way way that it is but genuine down valuations don't happen too often in my humble opinion a lot of the time the the reason why it looks like the valuation is lower um or coming lower is just because there's an unrealistic assumption as to what the property is actually going to be valued at they will base their um, value of the property on what has recently sold in the area. Sales comparables, genuine sales comparables. I had to have a conversation with a client recently. He wanted to launch an appeal and said, um, well, I think they've downvalued my three-bedroom terraced house because a, a two-bedroom flat around the corner sold for X in December. And I had to say, Mr. Client, I'm really, really sorry to tell you this, but that's not a sales comparable. The two properties are nothing close to each other. They've got completely separate markets. And so as a result, even though they're in the same area, this is what people don't realize. There's a different market for every different type of property within a certain area. So every single area has all these micro, micro uh, climates, these micro markets where 
you know, they might have, um, you know, a certain type of person is going to go for a three bedroom flat, but they're not going to go for a four bedroom flat. So you can't include them in the same market. So um, just because one property is doing really, really well, or property prices are going through the roof, for example, Barnet, where I grew up, I remember doing some research in that in that market in North London um, a little while back. Um, and because uh, there's a there's a bar in the high street that's been converted, uh, not it's not a bar anymore. I think it's, um, it's some sort of office on the ground floor but they've actually built above it into the airspace and they've created um, lots more residential units than there were previously and when I looked at the plans I noticed that they had created eight studio apartments and I was talking to an estate agent a friend of mine and I said you know they've created these eight studio apartments that doesn't you know it's a bit of a weird one for me and he said me too he said he, he said they put eight studio apartments in there they should have put six one-bedroom flats in there because they are going to fly off because one bedroom flats in Barnet are one of the most sought after types of properties just because that's what the local market wants. So when you are looking at comparables, you can't compare, you have to compare apples and apples. You can't compare apples to pears because, because a market for a two bedroom flat is gonna be very different to a market for a four bedroom house. And just because one is selling really, really well and above what, you know, when you look at it as a, you can't even do a comparison of like square footage, you know, you can kind of do square footage comparisons with maybe two or three bedroom houses and kind of work out that. But even so, three bedroom houses versus two bedroom houses, they're gonna have slightly different markets. And as a result, the, the price per square foot is going to be different. Um, so you have to compare, you know, three bedroom houses to three bedroom houses and four bedroom houses to four bedroom houses, three bedroom bungalows to three bedroom bungalows, etc. So that's where a lot of people get um, a bit, they get frustrated when they say their property down valued, but you have to look, did it genuinely down value? Because you've got, it's not as quick, it's not quite as simple as just checking on Rightmove and having a look at some sold prices in the local area. They've got to be very similar. And if a, if a surveyor, you know, the surveyors, surveyors insur insurance policies do not allow them to put their heads on the chopping board. They have to, if they don't have the sufficient evidence to say that a property is worth 200,000, they've only got sufficient evidence to say it's worth 190,000. If, even if a, um, a solicitor could, sorry, solicitor, an estate agent could sell that property for 210,000, makes no difference because that's the future market. Valuers are basing their pricing on the past market, basically. So what has already sold? So again, not wanting to get too, uh, yeah, I feel like today I'm like ready for a boxing match or something like that. I'm getting really excited about some of these questions, but that is the genuine truth of the matter. And it's not me being a dick to you guys. I am just telling you how surveyors will look at this and what actually genuinely is right and wrong and what, what battles you should fight as well. So I say quite frequently to a lot of my clients, it is not worth appealing this. I, obviously, if they want to, they're my client at the end of the day, it's their property, I'm there to help them, but I will always be majorly honest with them. And they're in the last, you know, so far this year, there has been at least two or three occasions when we've had down, down valuations on properties, i.e. properties have come in lower than, than the client anticipated. But when we've looked at the comparable evidence, actually there is no basis for an appeal generally speaking and by the way guys some mortgage lenders do not have an appeals process which means they will not accept an appeal they have they will basically say our surveyor has gone out and they've done their their they've they're a risk qualified surveyor therefore they know what they're doing so we are going to accept their decision regardless now i don't i think that's wrong because i think there is room for human error and everything and i've seen it firsthand um in fact one of the most annoying situations i've ever been in 
in my job was about four years ago, I had a client who had a property that he was purchasing to renovate down in Tunbridge Wells. And the, in my humble opinion, the surveyor got it absolutely, I mean, he just, he just, yeah, he dropped the ball, big style. And fair enough, that everyone makes mistakes. I've made mistakes in my career. Um, I'm very open about a lot of those. Um, I feel I'm a better broker now through making those mistakes. Um, but this particular surveyor completely dropped the ball, um, used really bad comparables, and we were able to actually put together what I thought was a watertight um, appeal. And even at this bridging lender, who are quite a well-known bridging lender, their internal team agreed with us. When they went to the surveyor, the surveyor literally, I mean, it's, it was pride. It was absolutely pride that he turned around and went, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not gonna change my, uh, my appeals. I'm not gonna change my, my decision on this. I'm not gonna rewrite the, the report, I'm right. Didn't even look at it. Did not even look at the comparative evidence. And that for me, I lose a lot of um, respect for people that won't even hold their hands up when they've made a mistake. If you made a mistake and you hold your hands up and you say, I'm gonna rectify this, then fair enough. You've, uh, you've done a cracking job there because everyone makes mistakes. This particular individual definitely didn't. And um, yeah, it's, it's stuck with me obviously till this day. In fact, you know what? I'm gonna tell you something now. I remember actually I printed out, we, me and the client printed out a Google Maps uh, map of the area with the, with the property in the middle. And we put a little cross next to all of the comparables that were used on the report by the, by the client, uh, sorry, by the surveyor. And then we found about seven or eight sales comparables that were in better positions that were more that were more similar to the properties that we actually um, we were actually buying. When I say we, you know, the royal we. He was buying. I was helping. Um, and it was just it was just phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal how this guy had missed all these comparables. Um, and he was putting properties that were four miles away. So there was there was actually a couple of the comparables that he used that weren't even on the map. <laughs> um, so we had to say like two miles up the road here <laughs> um, and they still and he still didn't overturn it so surveyors are under no obligation to uh, overturn it it's one of my big bugbears of our market that surveyors are the only people during the process of pur purchasing a property you know you've got brokers you've got the investor themselves you've got um, agents you've got solicitors you know you've got loads and loads of people that are involved property sources potentially loads of people that are involved architects etc all these people that are involved in the process of somebody buying a property, buying and selling a property, there is one individual during that process that gets paid regardless of the quality of the work that they do, and that are, that is surveyors. Now, I don't have an answer to this, unfortunately, I don't, um, but I do think this part needs to be revolutionized, uh, or at least evolutionized <laughs> a little bit. We need, we need to find a better way um, of doing this because I think the old way of just letting somebody loose who just happens to have a qualification just to go and do a poor job and then not hold their hands up and take responsibility for it because their insurance policy isn't there to cover um, them sticking their neck out and actually saying actually I do think this property is worth 200,000 but I'm going to put 190 because you know our insurance policy doesn't cover us um, for being slightly out or whatever you know, I think that's uh, that's terrible, and it, and our and our market suffers as a result. You know, we're also already seeing massive um, improvements, hopefully, in our legal uh, system with the you know with, with with blockchain and then the NFTs coming in, all this kind of stuff. Smart, um, what are they called? Um, 
smart contracts, you know, these kind of things. We saw um, we saw some conveyancing done in Australia using smart contact contracts last last month, which is incredible. And if we can bring, start bringing stuff of like that into our market, it's going to just create so much more opportunity to speed up our transactions, which is what we all want to happen. But the survey market, the part that the, the part of the part of the the process that involves surveyors, for me, that needs a massive overhaul. Um, I don't know, have the answers. Uh, maybe if I got in a room with, pe with people for a day, we'd come up with an idea. But um, yeah, anyway, I'm going to get off my high horse. I'm going to get off my soapbox uh, because I'm sure there's lots more questions that uh, you guys want me to answer. But Joel, thank you so much for your question uh, there. It managed to take me in all sorts of weird tangents, didn't it? Um, so guys, if you just joined, uh, welcome to episode 83 of the Monday Mortgage Mark. If you want to ask a question, please put it into the question box down below, not in the comments box because... As you can see, lots of people like Ilian and Warren uh, and Kem have joined recently and they just keep pushing those questions up and up and up and I will not be able to find them and I may well forget them because I could be quite forgetful sometimes. Um, but let's get cracking on to the next question um, from Building Surveyor. Silly question, no such thing as a silly question. Sorry in advance, um, no apology necessary, but what do you have to consider before going for a mortgage broker, the options and access to more lenders at best rates? Is it as simple as that? Um, no, it's not as simple as that. So it's, this is not a silly question and you've got nothing to be sorry for because actually this is so pertinent. This is such an important question because obviously me being a mortgage broker, me running my, my mortgage brokerage, um, I know I know through doing this for a long period of time that there are so many different types of brokers. It's a little bit like choosing a property sourcer. You wouldn't choose a property sourcer when you want to buy a property in Newcastle who specialises in property in, in, in Surrey. You know, you wouldn't do that. And it's the same sort of thing with, with brokerages um, or brokers in individually. You've got to look at what they specialise in. And generally speaking, you can, you can look at uh, brokers in one of two ways. And actually, I don't like this terminology I'm about to use, and I'll tell you why. You, you've got your residential brokers and you've got your, what you could call your specialist brokers. Now, what I don't like about um, the use of the word specialist broker, which is where I fit in, by the way, which is brokers that will deal more with um, investors and developers. What I don't like about the terminology specialist is it almost um, makes them sound more better than the residential ones. Well, I can guarantee you there are probably a thousand and a half people, brokers in the country, that are probably better at doing residential mortgages than I am. And they can teach me a thing or two. That's because that's their specialism. They're specialist residential brokers. And they might do the occasional bit of buy to let, which is absolutely fine. So generally speaking, because um, they can, they those types of brokers can generally do a higher volume of um, of applications on a monthly basis because of the type of mortgages that they're, 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 they're putting together. As a result, they usually don't have to charge as much from a, from a sort of an admin fee. And some of them will actually won't charge a fee at all. I'll be honest with you, a lot of them will push you to work with their insurance broker or they will they will do, make sure they do your insurance for you because then they'll earn some money out of that. Um, and maybe I'm not as, as forceful with my clients when it comes to that sort of stuff. Um, but they'll generally won't charge a fee or, or, or charge a very small fee because they'll be able to do some you know slightly higher volume. You've got London and Country are a great example of a nationwide brokerage that specialise in the residential market. And if you have a very simple residential need, they are the people for you and they're the best people for you because they've got a sales process that is focused on that type of business. Now, if you if you are an investor, then the next thing to look at is, right, 
does this broker that I'm going to speak to, does he have or she have an experience of working with investors and developers? How long have they been doing it for? What types of investments do these uh, clients of theirs do? Do they do um, service accommodation? Do they do HMO? Do they do buy to let? Do they um, invest in commercial property? Do they need bridging finance because they're doing BRR? Do they need development finance because they're doing you know, commercial to residential conversions or ground up developments? They're building houses. Um, you've got to ask your broker all of these questions. Market access is, is you know, in the specialist side, as I said, I don't like that terminology, but in the second special site, is a given. You've got to have complete and open and unrestricted market access. We can't say whole of market anymore because actually that's not the right terminology anyway. But um, if, uh, you know, what I will say is if a, if a broker ever tells you or gives you a specified number of lenders they have access to, like I saw recently somebody had said something on, on, a, on an Instagram post about them having access to 145 lenders. That to me says that they're working from a panel. Now, I don't know how many lenders I've got access to, hundreds, because I don't have any restriction to the lenders that I can work with. There are some lenders in the country that I've never heard of. That's because I've never needed to. Um, and that's not a bad thing because we can't, there are hundreds, there are more lenders in, in the UK than there are in the rest of Europe combined. So it's impossible for every broker to work with every single lender. And to be honest with you, you don't need a broker that works with every single lender. You need a broker that understands what you are trying to do, what your strategy strategy is and has helped people that have done what you want to do previously so they can impart that knowledge onto you as well. On top of that, and this is the last thing I will say, is personality is really key. Um, there are a lot of people out there that have come into contact with me and I know for a fact they couldn't stand the idea of me being their broker and I'm completely okay with that because I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea I sit here in hoodies and t-shirts most of the time when everyone's expecting a broker to be you know in a suit and tie and that sort of stuff and do you know what look I wear a suit and tie every now and again guys you know I'm not not uh you know not not adverse to, to dressing up and looking a bit dapper when I need to um got a casino night coming up soon so the old uh the old dinner jacket will be coming out for that um be doing my best mr bond impression but um but you know i know that my personality is not necessarily what every single person on this planet is going to be after and that's absolutely okay because there are other people that do like someone that's a bit more chilled out that they can have a conversation with because don't, don't forget guys the people the pe people and it's not just brokers it's your accountant it's the agents you work with it's it's everyone um you know your solicitor everyone in this um, in, in that will form your power team, you, you're going to be talking to them regularly. You've got to be able to get on with them. You've got to be able to have a good conversation with them. You've got to be, you know, you've got to enjoy the conversations that you're having with them. So that, you know, once you've got all of the base layer stuff, which is, do you have the market access? Do you have, um, you know, do you have experience working with the strategies that I am interested in? Um, the next thing is, you know, just personality. Are you the right person for me? Am I interested in, you know, in, in talking to you on perhaps, you know, you know, a twice monthly basis and, and, and honestly during the course of an application, you know, maybe two or three times a week potentially. Um, I would also, as, as a, as a aside to this as well, um, I would also ask the, the, the brokers that you, you're speaking to whether they have any support, because uh, I think it's vitally important. One of the biggest problems that I've encountered in my career is when you're a broker that's in demand and you have no support, nobody there doing your paperwork for you, doing checking your, you know, your compliance, doing the uh, chasing lenders and doing all this kind of stuff. Because if you don't have that, 
then you're probably spending 80% of your week doing that, which leaves you 20% to actually talk to your clients. Now, I've done this, um, I've been in this job long enough to know that there are a lot of parts of the process that are not a good use of my time. But the best use of my time is doing what I'm doing right now, but then also doing this on an individual basis, speaking to my clients when they need me. And yes, some clients, like any person that's in a service-based industry, sometimes my clients say, God sake, Sam, I've been calling you today and I can't get through. There's some days that just are like that, and that's just the way it is. But I will always get back to my clients within 24 hours, um, a lot of the time, a lot sooner than that. Even if it's just a quick voice note on a WhatsApp to say, um, I am nuts today. Is there anything that Ruby could help you with or someone other member of the team could help you with in my absence? Um, if, it, if you do desperately need me, I will find some time for you today. Um, and that's what I think a good broker should be doing, is they should be maximizing the time that they're doing. So speak to them about what kind of support they have as well. I think that's massively important. But um, building surveyor underscore, this is not a silly question. You don't have to be sorry. That was absolutely a brilliant question. And I obviously love speaking about what I do anyway. So um, so thank you for that. Um, guys, just very quickly, we're down to our last 10 to 15 minutes. So um, just as a heads up, if you are listening in and you missed the first part of this, not only will this video be going up on my IGTV, um, I think it's just called Instagram television anymore uh, now, Instagram TV or whatever it is, Instagram video um, after this, but you will also be able to listen to the whole episode moving forward forward on the Game of Loans podcast. So if you're not subscribed to the Game of Loans podcast, go to iTunes, Spotify, whichever platform you use, type in Game of Loans podcast. It will come up. It's nice and bright and blue. Um, the first episode, which we did an interview with Jack Wicks talking about social housing as a property strategy, was released last Thursday. So you can go and catch up with that if you haven't already. Um, but every single week I will be putting the audio version of these lives on there as well. So that will be available tomorrow morning. So make sure you go and check that out as well. Um, but let's get back to the questions for now. Um, so next one is from um, Ilian in property. Hi, Ilian. Do you invest in property yourself? Which is a fantastic question. And one you should probably ask your, your, um, your broker as well um, if you are choosing a new one. So I have a history of doing flips. Uh, my dad's a builder. So I know that side of it. Currently, I own no property. And there's a very good reason for that because I don't want to right now. <laughs> my focus is very, very much on building Grand Union Finance. The day-to-day -day running of that business and the growth of that business is really what gets me excited. I, my, my future and probably my very, very, you know, very close future, uh, immediate future will involve uh, reinvesting into some property. Um, but I have various other investments that I'm working on at the moment. Inve property is an amazing investment, but it's one of many. And I think that people should be aware of that. Now, my focus will be, as I think I mentioned earlier on, um, I build businesses to, to create income and revenue streams. And the idea is that the surplus income from those businesses are, is used once we reach certain buffer points, because I think every business that you, you build, you need a buffer point. You need to have a certain amount of cash in that business that means that you could basically run it without earning any income for a six, nine to 12 month period. And I'm working on that buffer within Grand Union at the moment. I'm not too far away from a 12 month buffer, which is fantastic. And once that happens, any surplus income off the top of that will be going straight into investing in property. Uh, simple as that. So um, really good, um, I guess, business strategy for me to share with you guys is that, you know, you sh business is this is straight out the, the pages of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, professional investors, professional business people, they will, you know, they'll have businesses that generate income. That income is used to purchase income generating assets and those income generating assets 
then pay for your lifestyle basically. What I wanna do is get to a point within the next probably couple of years where I, I have a small property portfolio that generates income that covers my, mine and my wife's you know, month to month. Um, and that, and, and that just keeps add, being added to by the profits of the businesses. I then don't actually have to take a profit. I don't actually have to take an income from any of the businesses that I am part of, which actually makes them easier to sell when you get to that point as well. So a uh, little bit of a uh, little bit of insight there for you two guys. Um, but look, we're, we're running a little bit short of time. So I'm going to try and get through these last three properties, uh, three properties, three questions as soon as I can. Um, so Amalinda's asked, um, how much does personal debt impact on your ability to get a buy to let mortgage this is a really 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 good and very very interesting question so thank you so much um for answering this or asking this particular i keep getting answering and asking the wrong way around basically sorry about that peeps um so um how much personal debt impacts your ability to get a buy to let mortgage well it depends on the lender now there is something that we call in the industry debt to income ratio so some of you might be aware of this some of you may not so for those of you that aren't i will explain this to you what this basically means is when you touch up all the outstanding debt you have all the balances non-mortgage that's between personal debt here so credit cards car finance, um, uh, personal loans, this kind of stuff, you total that up together. And if that is essentially, the rule of thumb is, if that's above 50% of your annual salary, there are going to be lots of ITLET lenders that are not going to lend to you. Simple as that, because they see that as, you, you know, you're putting yourself in under financial strain. And as much as the with a buy-to-let mortgage, the income that the property generates is what they're most concerned about, they are obviously concerned with your ability to, to repay the mortgage as well. And if you get yourself into financial difficulty, you may take that rental income and not use it to pay your mortgage with because you need it desperately for something else. So being in control of any outstanding debt. I mean, I'm I'm a great fan of debt, obviously, but it has to be good debt. You know, if you're if you're if you're raising, if you're putting a, a holiday on a credit card, that's a poor use of a credit card. Um credit cards, in my opinion, should be used to you know, basically get points so that you can take those holidays for free, you know, use an Amex to uh, pay for things, pay for, pay for all of your normal month-to-month uh, -month expenditure and then pay it off at the end of every month. You make, you're getting yourself loads of points. This isn't advice, by the way. This isn't financial advice I hasten to add. I have to put that down as a, as a qualified financial advisor, but that's what a lot of people, that's what wealthy people do. That's why you see them get the old Amex out because what they're doing is they're, they're, they're paying for everything they would normally pay for over the course of the month. They pay it all off at the end of the month um, they rack up all these points and, you know, they get uh, five star luxury hotels and they get, um, you know, first class flights around the world. And that's that's what they do. Um, so. So, yeah, so personal debt, you know, unsecured, poor personal debt um, can actually have an impact on your buy to let mortgage. The, the, the difficulty is, is um, I'll always say to a to if, if I've got a client that is somewhere between sort of 30 to 40 to 50% plus. I will mention it to a lender beforehand, but I'll be honest with you, most of the time they say, look, um, only some lenders have hard and fast rules about it. BM Solutions, Birmingham Midshires, they are one where if you're, if you're above 50%, chances are you're gonna get declined, you're not gonna pass their credit, um, their credit search or their, you know, their, their credit scoring system at the beginning. So, uh, but yeah, most will say, you know, suck it and see, get it through the decision in principle and let's just see how it works. But generally speaking, you know, if you do have debt and you're paying it per month and you're servicing it per month, that actually has, ends up having a positive effect on your credit file. So 
you know, it's a little bit of a catch-22. You don't want too much, but at the same time, having a credit card and using it a little bit every single month um, shows that you are able to use a revolving credit line and that will uh, actually up your credit score. Your credit score isn't all that important, guys, just as an FYI, because lenders don't actually see it. They will only see the information that's actually on your file. So don't be too concerned about your credit score going up by like two or three points, or, you know, even 10 to 15 points. It really doesn't make a difference. Um, and those, those... Poor, fair, good, blah, blah, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Um, this, you know, the real difference is, you know, is your score 999 or is your score 699? Uh, that's that's a big, di that's a difference. You know, a difference in 100 is probably not going to be a difference between you getting one mortgage or another, um, in, in all fairness. It's what's, it's the information that's on your report that is the most important. So, um, so there we go. Right, let's get on to the next question because we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, one from Jed, what are your feelings and the longevity of short-term lets as an industry uh, with government regs? Um, yeah, so so for, the, for those of you, when we talk about short-term lets, we're obviously talking service accommodation, Airbnb, booking.com, this kind of stuff. Um, I'm a fan. I think that um, it's a great business model. I don't think the lending is where it needs to be right now. It's not strong enough. The market isn't strong enough uh, from a lending point of view, which is quite upsetting. Um, as I said earlier on, it's a little bit like the Wild West from a, a, a policy and criteria perspective. Lenders can't figure out what to call it. Um, and I think that actually, in general, um, I think it's a massive growth market. More, I've got, I have more of my clients that um, invest in properties that they're going to rent out on a short-term basis than I ever have. Um, you know, I think my first ever client that bought a holiday let, as we called them back in the day, was about six years ago. Um, and since then, you know, if you look at the, the last two years, probably 80 to 90% of all of the transactions I've done on this basis have been in those last two years, not the preceding four. So it just shows where the market is headed. More and more people are doing it. But do you know what? It's like HMO a few years back, you know, um, Property investors are seeing creative ways of maximizing the profits from a single property. You know, a lot of people use rent to rent as a as a uh, as an example of a strategy whereby they can actually maximize profit on a on a on a property by taking a property from the senior landlord over here and then being the conduit, paying them a, a rent five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred pounds per month, and then renting the property on Airbnb for you know um, two hundred pounds a night. And that, and then over the course of the month, they're obviously making an absolute killing on that. Maybe it's not as clear cut as that, but you get what I'm trying to say. So, um, you know, this type of strategy is becoming more and more and more um, popular. And I, I just don't, it's not quite popular enough yet to be forcing lenders on mass to making big changes to their criteria and bringing out new products because it is a product it's a specific product type so you couldn't just get a buy to let mortgage with a lender that's happy with you lending uh, renting the property on airbnb you have to get short term let and a service accommodation a holiday let product within within a lender that's comfortable with it so you wouldn't just get a buy to let mortgage hmo mortgage whatever it might be you would have to get a short term um let mortgage and there isn't there just isn't the the products available at the, at the moment that i would like and i wish the criteria was a little bit more you know, generalized from lender to lender. 
but that's not really happening either. So it's um, it's a tricky market, it's a growth market. I'm hoping that if we had this conversation in two years time, it'd be a completely different conversation. I'm feeding back to lenders constantly on what they should be looking at to try and get market share. Because the challenger banks, and these are the lenders that are, you know, if you think of your high street banks as your Barclays, your, your Santander's, et cetera, et cetera, and then you've got the challenger banks underneath, you know, your Kent Reliances, your Precise, your Paragons, these lenders that the in the specialist market are very, very well known, but they're trying to get market share. You know, they're trying to build out a niche, carve out a niche, and you've got certain lenders that are much better at it than others. Um, and there are, you know, some lenders like the likes of Interbay, um, uh, Keystone Foundation, they are looking at this short-term let option as a way of being able to, you know, get more inquiries, get more applications, get more borrowers, get more money out the door. Um, a lot of it also comes back to funding lines, to be honest with you, not wanting to get too technical, but the funding lines, you know, because 80% of our, our of our country is actually funded by a few banks at the top. Um, put it this way, guys, there's a very good reason why the bank, the, the government bailed out RBS during the credit crunch, because if they went under, our whole lending market could have absolutely, you know, capsized essentially, because they lend out such a large portion of um, you know, all the lending that goes on in this country, it trickles down. Um, banks lend to each other and then they lend it out and they make their margins and they pay it back and whatnot. Um, it's quite, you know, quite complicated. But, you know, these these funding lines are sometimes the obstruction to any changes that are going to happen in a positive way. So, um, but yeah, look, all in all, I think the um, I think the, the short-term market, the service combination market is a great one. Long may it continue, long may it grow. And I'm doing my best, I promise to you guys, um, to talk to lenders and get them interested in lending on these types of properties. Right, I think we've got one more question left. And that's from uh, from Zihar, which is, thanks for the content. You are more than welcome. How can I get a mortgage as an Israeli overseas investor? I own two UK flats. Now, this is a tricky one, okay, because back in the... Um, Back in, oh, when was it? About four or five years ago, we had something called the Mortgage Market Review here in the UK. And ironically, given what's just happened over the last couple of years with Brexit, um, we had a load of new um, policy and, and, and regulation come in from the EU concerning um, lending, etc., etc. Now, if you consider that I think the UK is probably one of the most established one of the safest and one of the strongest lending markets in the world. The fact that some dunce from Belgium has been telling us what to do uh, just kind of doesn't make sense. But there we go. Um, I was pro I was anti-Brexit, by the way, just so you know. Um, now, fuck knows. But there we go. Um, but the... Um, but a lot of this policy came in, and actually, part of the irony as well from is from an from you know outside the UK. A lot of this policy that came in actually made it more difficult for UK banks to lend to people a living overseas or b not earning in 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 GBP uh, Great British pounds. So a lot of lenders because basically they had to do extra checks. They had to do those new regulations brought in to make it more difficult to to lend to these people. Um, purely because there was more paperwork to do, more due diligence to do, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of lenders just went, do you know what? No, no thanks. Um, I'm out. We're not, we're not bothering with this. And en masse, you know, 90% of the market was lost for expats and for foreign nationals overnight. Um, so it makes it a lot, lot more difficult. Now, 
The truth is, it is still difficult to this day. Um, it hasn't really improved much since then. And we are very, very much short of lenders that can lend to those based overseas. Now, the problem that we have on top of that is that we then have basically like categories of countries in terms of how risky they are. Um, so top of the tree, you've got the European countries, you've got um, the Western countries, not including Australia and America, I'll come back to that, but you'll have Dubai, Switzerland, these sorts of countries where um, they're safe and it's actually quite easy to probably get hold of information on potential um, clients where they have to do their due diligence. Now under that, you know, you've got your next row down, you've got maybe your US uh, citizens, you've got your, your Australians, the, the difficulty with lending to people that are based that are connected in some way to the US is that anyone involved in the US system at all the lenders have to report to the um to the whatever that the US equivalent of the uh, is it the federal reserve or the the taxation or whatever it is basically whatever that they deal with in terms of tax they have to report to them and most lenders just can't be asked to do that and why should they uh but in America annoying us um but anyway so they um so they're kind of further down the list and then you've got your other countries you know a lot of your african countries that are deemed high risk you know india pakistan bangladesh they don't that in that part of the world again seemed seen as high risk and israel's probably somewhere in the mix between two and three um and that does mean unfortunately that there is a lot less lending opportunities for people that reside in those countries um it doesn't mean there is no options it just means you're probably going to have to pay a little bit over the um over the standard kind of rates and fees and whatnot um that you would do if you would if you were based in the uk it's as simple as that um it's a bit frustrating you are probably going to be limited from a loan size perspective as well generally speaking you know if you if your loan is under a hundred thousand again you're probably going to have a few issues in terms of getting a half decent mortgage but there's enough there's enough options out there um but they're they're a bit fewer and further between than, than I would have hoped. Um, they have got slightly better, I'd say, over the last couple of years, um, but not that much more. So, CR, sorry, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. That's my job so often is to be the bearer of bad news, but, um, but hey-ho. Look, guys, I've managed to, actually managed to get through all the questions today. So well done me. I did stay on for a couple of extra minutes so, uh, to just get through those last ones. But if you joined late, don't worry. You can catch up with this over on... Uh, my podcast, it will be released on the Game of Loans podcast tomorrow morning from 8 a.m. So you can listen to it on your drive into work um, if you if you missed the first part. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the Game Alone podcast anyway, there's like 87 episodes or something. We have the first series that finished last year, just started series two with an awesome interview with Jack Wicks talking about um, the... Uh, talking about the social housing strategy. Uh, cheers, Sam. Every hour is worth months of research. You are so welcome. Um, but yeah, anyone that's missed their own question, you know, make sure you catch up on the Game Alone's podcast tomorrow morning. Or if you want to actually watch it back, this is going to be on my Instagram TV um, any second now. As soon as I've finished, it will go straight up on there. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining me and, and choosing to spend an hour of your Monday with me. It's always an absolute pleasure to have you on. And it's also an absolute pleasure to answer your questions because they're always so bloody good. Um, but don't forget, we do this every single Monday at 5 p.m. So set your watches for next week. Um, and I will see you then live at five for another episode of the Monday Mortgage Mount. Mount, melt next Monday. See you then, guys. Have a good one.